0: Let's pray. Father, we, we've um, gathered together this morning as your people in this place, and we're asking, the Lord, that we'd hear a word from you, that you would speak in such a way that we can hear your voice, that we can uh, be moved to understand you better. Father, right now, we, d- we just want to open... Our hearts to you, our minds to you, our lives to you, and ask that you'd go to work. Not just this morning, Lord, but through this whole series of Amos. Uh, Use it in us, use it in our church, use it to, to transform us into people who are better at following you, who are better representatives of you and your kingdom in our world. So we just lay our lives before you this morning and ask, Lord, for your spirit uh, to minister, to speak, and work in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Dan Cox was a uh, former jet pilot, and he wrote in a little book called "Seize the Day" about um, the struggle it was to eject pilots out of jets. You know, before when you had a prop plane, they could just jump out and they had a parachute, but jets were going so much faster that it became far, far more complicated uh, to do that. So they they created a way that the seat would be exploded out of the jet. But the struggle was, is the pilot then had to lean forward and actually roll out of the chair because if he didn't, uh, the parachute wouldn't open very well. That's a problem. So um, they would tell pilots this, but, you know, in the moment, they would hold on too tight. So the engineers went back to work, and they came up with an ingenious solution to the problem. They created kind of a rescue strap. And what it did, it it attached right at the bend of the seat and then went under the the rear end of the pilot and up behind his back and then attached to the headrest. The seat would explode out of the plane and then about two seconds after that, there was a take-up reel that would wrap the strap, the two-inch wide strap, and tighten it. And when it tightened it, 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 it thrust the pilot out and he had to let go and then the parachute could open and he'd be safe. I think Amos was a rescue strap for the nation of Israel. God was speaking through Amos, trying to get them to let go of their disobedience, to let go of their complacency, to, to let go of their indifference, to let go of their idolatry so that they wouldn't crash and burn upon the judgment of God. I'm praying and hoping that Amos might have a similar effect on us, that he might be a rescue strap for us as we study him that propels us in a sense to the next level in our relationship with God, causes us to let go of some things we need to let go of and change some things we probably need to change. I'm not sure rescue straps are very comfortable things, but sometimes they're pretty necessary things so is the book of Amos. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 as we start this morning. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash was king of Israel. Now, archaeologically, they're able to identify a particular moment in time when this earthquake took place. Um, we believe that this event, Amos writing this book and giving these oracles, because what Amos is, is a collection of speeches that Amos gave to the ruling class in Israel. Um, that these occurred somewhere around 750, 760 B.C. So 750 years before the birth of Christ, Amos is speaking to the nation of Israel. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem, and the pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. The text pictures... God as this lying lion who, who is agitated, angry, and he roars and his breath just withers everything in its path. In a sense, this is a book of judgment. You read that first verse and it just raises all kinds of questions, uh, um, all kinds of questions. And we, we want to wrestle with some of them this morning as kind of an introduction to the book. So I want to see if we can touch on four questions this morning. One, why in the world would we study the book of Amos? It's a fair question. Two, who was Amos and what's so important about him? Three, what's going on in Israel at this moment in time? Because I think we'll see some parallels to our moment in time. And four, What are the key concepts? There's some overriding issues that are going on in the book of Amos that I think we'll see again and again and are sometimes in the background, but we need to be familiar with. So, why study the book of Amos? I I mean, it it was written almost 3,000 years ago to this... Uh, tribe of people, uh, Israel, that seems to have very little connection with uh, us. Their world was not our world. Uh, um, it's ancient stuff. It, it seems archaic. If you read the book, it seems really negative. It seems really obscure. It's. How many of you read the book? H- how'd that work for you? You know what I what I've heard is I don't understand it. it it's tough. So, so why do we want to study the book of Amos? It is all those things, but you also discover it's very provocative. It's very challenging. It, 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 it makes you think and wrestle, and we'll see that as we go through it. So, so why? Three reasons. One, we believe that all the Bible is profitable. Uh, Paul says all scriptures is inspired and profitable for people who want to be transformed into the image of Christ. We need the message of Amos. Too often, we go and gravitate to the easy parts of the scripture, right? We read the Gospels, which is the story of Jesus in the New Testament. We read the the epistles or the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, and those are far more accessible, and they're written in a way we understand where Amos is, is not. So we gravitate towards that. But when we do that, we miss out on a more complete understanding of God. God is like a diamond, you know, and when you take a diamond, you can look at it from different perspectives and you look into it through different facets. And when you do, you see different parts of the diamond and it shines in a different way and you see brilliance that you didn't see from one angle, you catch from another. It's that way. If we don't spend time in the prophetic literature, and by the way... Most of the Bible could be considered prophetic literature. If we only gravitate to those parts we like or those parts that are easy, we're not going to have a very good understanding of God. We're, we're going to be like the guy who likes to work out and he likes to do bicep curls, but that's the only thing he likes to do. And if all you do is curls, curl, <laughs> bicep curls, bicep curls—that's hard to say. Uh, if all you do is bicep curls, you're going to end up with big arms and skinny legs. And nobody wants to have just simply big arms and skinny legs. We need the whole of scripture to really understand the nature of God, which gets us to the next reason, which is found in Amos 412. Amos says this to the people of Israel. It says, prepare to meet your God. And the implication is you don't have a clue who he really is. Now, they thought they did. They thought they understood God pretty well. And Amos is saying, no, you you don't. In fact, you're going to be, you're going to be really surprised what he's really like because you've misconstrued him. You're worshiping an illusion of your own creation. So prepare to meet your God. And it is a scary thing to think that you've been worshiping a God who you thought was real, who isn't real because you've misconstrued who he is. So Amos says, prepare. You know, how we think about God is incredibly important. And know we, we don't like to think about thinking about God because what we want out of our experience with Jesus is this, well, Larry and David were talking about the tingle feeling with Jesus, you know, the Jesus tingle. And that's great. Our, our faith has to be experiential and we have an experiential faith, but that experience has to be informed by a good understanding, a good conceptual thinking, understanding of who God is. After all, we're supposed to love God uh, with all our strength and all our heart, and all our mind. So the concept of understanding God is critically important because it shapes our experience in our life and how we live. Listen to what Henry, John Henry Jowett writes. And I think this is, this is good. We leave our place, places of worship, and no deep and inexpressible wonder sits upon our faces. We can sing these little melodies, and when we go out into the streets, our faces are one with the faces of those who have left the theaters and the music halls. There's nothing about us to suggest that we have been looking at anything stupendous and overwhelming. And what is the explanation of the loss? Preeminently, our impoverished conception of God. Amos is a book that will change our conception, our understanding of who God really is. Third reason we want to study it is we want to learn to read the Prophets. Like I said, most of the Bible is prophetic literature, Um, but it's not easy to, it's the hardest literature to understand and to read. So we're going to try to model how to do that, Um, and we'll be doing these. We'll be looking for key themes. Uh, Read through Amos, and it's a bunch of oracles or speeches given to the Israelites collected. So you don't read it the same as you do in another book. You look for themes because themes are repeated in different ones of the speeches. So you look for key themes and we'll do that. We're not going to go verse by verse. We're going to take major section and look for the key theme in a particular oracle. Then you ask yourself this question, what does this oracle or this this passage teach us about God, ourselves, in our world, you have to think theologically and kind of abstract up. well. So what is this telling me about the nature of God, myself, and others and the world? And then you look for what are similar issues in our day. So Amos is going to talk about idolatry, but the way we're idolatrous in our culture is very different than the way they practiced idolatry in there. We're going to talk about the, our concern for the, the poor. And the way that uh, Amos is people, the Israelites were indifferent towards the poor is probably different than the way we're indifferent towards the poor. So we have to, to wrestle some to see how it applies. But if we do, it can be transformative. So that's why. Second question, who is Amos? Um, Chapter seven, verse 14 and 15 gives us a little insight He writes there, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. And when we think of a prophet, we typically think of someone who is forth telling the future. And at times prophets in the Old Testament and New Testament do that, but very seldom. In fact, less than 1% of the time is a prophet really acting as a seer that is forth the future, even though that's the popular conception. Most of the time, what a prophet is doing is simply being the, the, the spokesperson for God. They are God's voice speaking into a particular situation at a particular time with a particular people. They're they're an intermediary. They're God's voice coming to bear on the reality of life. And that's what Amos is. He's God's prophet. And when he speaks, God is speaking. And thus, we are to listen. That's what a prophet does. Now, Amos is... His name Amos actually means to bear something, uh, some or or to bear up under something, or to be a pain. And I think Amos was a pain to the people he went to because they didn't particularly like him. He he was from Tekoa. Tekoa is a little town south of Jerusalem, and he's going to Israel. So Israel's in the north. Amos is from the south, from Judah. So he was an outside outsider. He, 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 he was um, a rural guy, a herdsman and a shepherd. Uh, he wasn't a city person. He probably was not wealthy. He may have had flocks, but uh, we, we think that because he was a sycamore fig uh, farmer that he was dealing with the lower escalon of society most of the time. He's well-educated. You can tell that by the use of his language in the book and by the fact that he knows what is happening geopolitically in his world, which is pretty tough in his day because you couldn't get a copy of the Wall Street Journal. You had to pay attention to other things to figure out what was going on. So what you want to note about him is he's an outsider and an outsider sees what we miss. You see, we're we're like fish in the sea, man. And, And Amos is coming to the fish and talking about the water, and they're going, what, what are you talking about, water? It's just all around them. They can't see it. And that's what's happening with Israel. They think that they're being blessed and that they're being blessed because they've been obedient, and that's the reason for their prosperity. And Amos is saying, no, that's, that, you got it wrong. That's not the reason for your prosperity. The reason for your prosperity is your sin. No, 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 no. See, they can't see it, and they need somebody from the outside to step in. You know, a lot of times we need somebody from the outside to step in because it's so close to us. We can't see what's going on or where we're out of joint with what God really wants in our lives. It's been interesting this week. I don't know if you've been following Pope uh, Francis's visit. But he's functioning as an outsider and, and he's speaking into our culture and he's speaking into our society. And it's been, it's been fun to kind of watch all these different political parties and different people's agendas. And they're trying to grab a hold of Pope Francis. And the problem is he doesn't fit any category. He's not really a Republican. He's not really a Democrat. He's not really a liberal. He's not really a conservative. Where does he fit? And he's doing, you know, he, he's a pastor. He's a shepherd and he's speaking from the outside. And I think that's what we're oftentimes as Christians called to do in our culture, to step back and speak to it from the outside. Because we'll see what other people don't. A second thing to realize about Amos is he understands the view from below. Uh, fig farmers were on the lowest rung of society in that day. And if you were a fig picker, you were some of the poorest people around. And that's the people that Amos lived with and dealt with. He understood what it was like to have a hard life, what it was like to not have very many resources, what it was like to, to be, be mistreated by others, to be at the bottom rung of things. Your view when you're on the bottom looking up is very different than your view when you're on the top looking down. Uh, the poor and the disenfranchised view life very differently than the wealthy and those in power. Um, their values are different. Their perspective is different. How they approach life is different. Uh, and you see that today. Uh, uh, people on the underside of life put far more value into relationships and community and interdependence. And, you know, as you get wealthy, you put far more uh, importance on independence and managing resources. And uh, Amos is speaking from the lower quadrant and looking up. Third thing is um, Amos has street cred. Uh, what I mean by that, we'll look at the rest of chapter 7. Uh, Amos's message was not well accepted. Okay. He is speaking against the status quo. He's speaking into places of power. He he is speaking against the operating system the way they knew it. And, and they didn't like what he had to say. And he's getting rejected. And he's getting rejected from, from really the people in charge. And that's a dangerous place to be in. In fact, tradition says that Amos gave his life, uh, was killed at the hand of Jeroboam the who, second, who was king at this time. And notice, this is how Amaziah... Amaziah is the top religious leader in Israel at this moment in time. And notice how Amaziah responds to him. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. (laughs) I don't want to hear it. We're not going to listen. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Remember, he's from the south. At this point, Israel's the northern nation. Judah is the southern nation. They used to be one, and there's been a split. So he's a foreigner to them, (laughs) Earn your bread and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. And Amos answered Amos, I was neither prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of the sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. He has street cred because he's obedient. As I read that, I was thinking, you know, sometimes it's really hard to listen to people who challenge our values and our lifestyle in ways that make us uncomfortable. And our our initial response is to reject them and to assume that they're not speaking for God. And Amos gives us a good caution here. We shouldn't be so quick to dismiss those who speak into our lives or speak into our culture uh, um, that we want to reject be, just because it's too radical, it's too challenging. I mean, later on in that passage, Amos comes back and says, Amos, here's what's going to happen to you because you won't listen. And it's God's judgment. So we need to be careful and discerning as we work through this book. So third question. What is going on in Israel? Just a little history. Uh, Israel and Judah used to be one under King Solomon. When Solomon died, his son took half and another king took half. And you ended up with two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That's the situation. This is about 200 years later. At this moment in history, Israel, the northern kingdom, is... uh, well, things are going great. Assyria, their archenemy, has uh, withdrawn its armies and gone back to deal with some domestic issues. Israel has been able to take over the trade routes that go through Palestine. And there's a new class of merchants that are becoming wealthy because they're capturing all the trade. And what you have at Israel at this point is a really, really wealthy class of people and a really, really poor class of people and the gap between them is just increasing astronomically and it's into that situation that that that, that Amos is speaking so a couple of things you discover about Israel at this moment in time one they are very religious um they're worshipping at the temple But but their religion is twisted. On the one hand, they will worship Yahweh and they'll go to the temple, but then they'll also bow down before this golden calf that they brought with them out of Egypt. And they'll participate in the fertility cults. So they're very religious. They're just not very godly, okay? Second, they're very prosperous, or at least the upper class is very, very prosperous. And and we're gonna have to wrestle with this issue. Their prosperity, with their prosperity comes some responsibility to, to use their wealth for the common good, to use their wealth to help the poor, but they will have none of it. They are indifferent. What they use their wealth for is to consume it on themselves. And in the book, it'll talk about having multiple homes and ivory couches and enjoying expensive wines. And they're just indulging themselves on this great wealth because they think it's God's blessing but they're not caring for the poor. In fact, their wealth is coming on the backs of the poor. They pay them very little. They oppress them. They're pushing them down so that they can be wealthy and and they're not fulfilling the responsibility that comes with the wealth. Prosperity can be a dangerous thing. Secure. I I mean, they're at the top of the mountain militarily. But what they forgot is that... uh, when you're at the top, you don't always stay there for very long. And they assumed they'd always be there. So they're secure. I mean, Assyria is doing its things. we, Our, our, our land holdings is, is as large as they've ever been. Our, our military might is great. Life is grand. So when Amos shows up and says, hey, don't you understand? You're going to get defeated. You're going to be judged. You're going to be taken off into exile. They're going, no, oh, no, no, no. We're at the top of the heap. Nobody can defeat us. Wrong. Because within about twenty years Assyria comes back and now comes back with a vengeance and destroys Israel and takes them off into exile. Now Israel was made up of the ten tribes that went to the north, and those ten tribes disappear from the pages of history. They weren't as secure as they thought. Things change. Probably the thing that is most troubling that, that worries me the most is this last fact, and that is they're oblivious. <laughs> they say, "Amos, yeah, yeah. what are you talking about? God's going to judgment? No, 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 we're, we're under His blessing. I mean look how things are going. Uh, you know, trade's going well, uh, the merchandise is moving, the economy's doing well, the borders are secure, um, life is good. And Amos says, no, you don't understand. You are misreading your circumstances. What you attribute to God's blessing is really attributable to your sin. And you're oblivious. What what makes me nervous is I wonder how often I'm oblivious to those things in my life that are so obvious to God that need to be changed but I'm indifferent or I ignore or I just don't pay attention or it just doesn't strike me. We swim in the water, right? We swim in the water of our culture and we swim in the water of the life we've built. And it's hard for us to step back and be objective enough and evaluate it from God's perspective. That's why the book of Amos is going to be so challenging. So let's talk about some of the key concepts that we'll we'll, we'll find there. The first is the issue of idolatry, um, and, and when we read about idolatry, uh, you know, idolatry in their day was the worshiping of other gods that were typically manifested in in idols. And, and we think to ourselves, "Oh, we don't wrestle with idolatry. We don't have any of those around. You know, I don't have a little idol at home that I'm tempted to go bow." down to. So, so we don't think we fall into this kind of idolatry, and this is really an idolatry of substitution, substituting another God for God. But we do, it's just far more subtle. Anytime in our lives when we look for something other than God to fulfill those deepest needs in us that only he can fulfill, when, when we look to something else to fulfill that, that's idolatry. So, so when we look for our wealth to give us significance, or we look for sex to make us happy, or or we look for power to, to give life meaning, that, that's form of idolatry. And by the way, it's not necessarily bad things that becomes idols. Anytime we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, and look for that good thing to do what only God can do for us in our lives, that's idolatry. Your career can become an idol. Your kids can become an idol. A relationship can become an idol. See, that's the scary thing about idolatry. It can be very, very subtle when we substitute anything for what only God can be ultimately in our lives. It's idolatry. A second kind of idolatry... I think of as rather than substitution as transformation. It's when we take God and we don't substitute him, but we kind of mold him into what we want him to be. It's like we're carving our own little deity in our life. And we we take those things about God we like and do away with those kind of things about God we don't like. And 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 what's interesting when we do that, we become the arbitrator of who God is, as if what I think about who God is, is the determiner of who God really is in reality. It's a little foolish. God is who God is. And my preference on whether I like him or not, or what he does, doesn't change the nature of his reality. Christianity at its heart is a a, a religion of revelation and what that means is God is telling us who he is and our issue isn't to mold him to what we like or our preference but to accept and discover the reality of his character whether we like it or not. Third kind of idolatry is (laughs) is what I like to think of as a smorgasbord. You know, when you go to a smorgasbord, what, what happens? You take those things you like, and you leave those things you don't. You you don't take the things that are good for you. You only take the things that are bad for you, or taste bad, unless you're one of those strange people who like the things that are good for them, which is not me. It's a smorgasbord religion. I like this. And that's our, our culture a lot of times. I like, I like this notion out of this tradition, and I like this idea of, out of this one, and we put it together and we kind of end up not just morphing God into what we want, but creating a whole new God of what, what we want him to be. And, and I hear people do this all, all the time. Well, I don't, I don't like this notion of hell, so we just will do away with that. I don't, don't, don't like this idea of judgment, uh, so uh, this, our God will simply be gracious. I don't like the fact that he's so concerned about sex and gender. We'll just make him not that way. And we mold him and shape him into what he's not. Second issue we'll confront. Is nominalism. Nominalism is a word that means in name only, and this is uh, the fact that in Amos you'll see that these people were giving lip service to being obedient to God, but weren't living in obedience to God. They they gather on Sundays, you know, their their rear ends would be in the pews. They'd sing the songs and then they'd leave and what they just experienced and what they just gone through and the commitments they just made had no relevance on their life in terms of how they treated others, in terms of what they did with their money, in terms of how they expressed their sexuality, in terms of how they handled relationships, in terms of how loving they were. I mean, inside they talk about serving God, but outside it was all about them. They were nominal in name only. They, they, you know, it's dangerous to have a mild form of Christianity. I wonder if sometimes we're just mildly Christian. Listen to Chad Walsh. He, He writes this. He says, millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from stained glass windows, their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quiver, divorced from the intellect, divorced from the will, and demanding little except list service to a few harmless platitudes. I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a person travels far enough away from Christianity, he or she is always in danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding that it's true. It's much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a person with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. I wonder, sometimes are we simply mildly Christian when God is calling us to radical commitment? The last concept we'll have to deal with is this notion of God as the, the, the just judge. Judge. We don't like this in our culture. What we'd like God to be is a God of pure love and grace and forgiveness and do away with his judgment. But we do away with his judgment and his justice and his holiness to our own detriment. You see, it is God's justice and judgment and his holiness that ultimately gives people hope. You say, how does that give people hope? Well, you see, the only people who believe that God is just pure love and gracious and forgiving are people who live in the ghettos of the suburbs. Because in their experience of life, they don't need a judgmental God. But if you're in Syria right now and you just have been ostracized from your home and you've watched your relatives killed, man, the only hope you have is that there's a God of justice and that someday God will make things right. Murslav Wolf was a Croatian theologian who used to hate the notion of God's wrath he thought it was antithetical to God's love. And, and then he went through this experience of war in his country. He says, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. Could I not imagine God... And I could not imagine God not being angry. I think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness. Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. See, it's our belief, in fact, in a wrathful God that allows us to love our enemy. You see, if there's not a wrathful God that will take vengeance and make things right in the end, then my desire is to get vengeance myself. But Paul tells us, leave vengeance for God. Rather, you love. And I can love my enemy. We can love our enemy because there is a God of justice behind reality that someday will make things right. You see, this God of justice and judgment and holiness gives us hope. But this God of justice and justice and holiness also manifests God's love. You say, wait, Nick, how, how does that happen? You know, someone will come to me and say, you know, Nick, I, I want to believe in God and that he's a God of love, but I can't buy this notion of hell. And when somebody tells me that, I like to ask them this question, well, how does the God you worship then forgive? And, and the person will say, well, just, the God just decides to forgive. He's, he's gracious and he, he, he's forgiving. And then I asked him this question. So if he just forgives, what does it cost him to forgive? And the answer is, well, nothing. Nothing. You you see, when you believe that God is only love and not just in judgment, you minimize the depth of his love. Because if you ask a person of faith, a Christian, what did it cost God to forgive? The answer is everything. The answer is the death of his son. The answer is going to the cross. And laying down his life to satisfy the wrath and the justice of God. And when you ask me, what did it cost God to forgive me and to forgive you? It's everything. And the depth of his love blows you away. See, that God is a God of love. So we need to understand his justice, his wrath, and his holiness. So let me end I, I want to give you one more verse from the New Testament and then two thoughts, okay? 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says this. These things happen to them. The things in the Old Testament happened to them. That's the Israelites as examples and were written down as a warning for us. You know, it's easy to go to the the, the, the book, the prophetic books, and, 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 you know, you have to answer the question, is it them or is it us? It is the prophets written to them, the big bad world out there. And that's oftentimes how we go to the prophets when they talk about sin and idolatry and all that stuff. And we wag our finger at the culture and say, it's all those bad people out there. But what we forget is the prophetic books weren't written to them out there. They were written to God's people, to the covenant people, to us. To us. Now, God says some things to the nations. We'll see that next week. But the majority of Amos is written to you and me, to us. So we don't get off the hook. So the question becomes finally, will we allow God and Amos over the next two months to be our rescue strap? To uh, uh, allow it to propel us out of our seats, to allow it to, to make us let go, let go uh, of the sins we're holding on to. Let go of some of the lifestyle things that need to be changed. Let go of some of the apathy we have. And I've been wrestling with that this week. I'll just be with honest with you. I'm, a, I'm about to turn 60 in the next few months. And I began to realize that when I was in my 20s and I was exposed to the radical claims of the gospel and people said, you know, you need to change your lifestyle and you need to be radically committed. I, you know, in my 20s said, that's awesome. Let's do it. Let's go. I'm 60, and I've lived 60 years, and now when I hear the radical claims of the gospel, sometimes rather than these these great challenges I want to embrace, I see them as challenges that I want to uh, deflect, challenges that I want to refute, because I've got 60 years behind me of how I've lived. And I want to say, well, man, you messed up that. I'd rather sometimes defend my past rather than change my future. <laughs> and I got news for you, man Amos is making me think about my past. And it's hard. <laughs> it was easy when I was in my 20s, <laughs> it's so much more difficult now that I'm 60. So will we let God use Amos to be our rescue strap let's pray Father help us help me I' open my heart and my mind and my life to the challenge that you're going to give us over the next few months Lord use your spirit help me be willing to uh, embrace the call of a radical commitment to you, no matter what the cost, no matter what it means that needs to be changed. I ask this in the the incredible name of Jesus Christ, our King and Savior. Amen.